Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this LSE online event on artificial intelligence and democracy, which is part of the Forum for Philosophy conference series. My name is uh, Thomas Ferretti, and I teach philosophy and business ethics here at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Today, I've invited a panel of experts to talk about their research on the impact of artificial intelligence on democratic norms. So defining artificial intelligence is not an easy task, um, but for the sake of our discussion today, I adopt a simple definition presented by Jason Gabriel, who is an AI ethicist at uh, DeepMind, uh, Google's AI company. So intelligence can refer to an agent's ability to achieve a variety of goals in a wide range of environments. And when this ability is attributed to computer systems and models, we can talk about artificial intelligence. And machine learning in particular refers to a family of statistical and algorithmic approaches used to train a model so that it can perform intelligent actions. A famous example of the capabilities of machine learning algorithms is DeepMind's program AlphaGo, who managed to learn how to play Go by itself and to defeat Lee Sedol in 2015, the best human player of Go. Today, public administrations increasingly use AI to automatize the allocation of social benefits. Judges sometimes experiment with using uh, risk assessment algorithms to determine a person's eligibility for bail or parole. And social media platforms use AI to optimize content moderation, while political actors can use these platforms to engage in micro-targeting and misinformation. So this raises a number of philosophical questions. What legitimacy do governments or businesses have in selecting principles of AI governance? Are black box algorithms threatening our capacity to exercise scrutiny over the decisions of public institutions? And how can we align AI systems with democratic values such as fairness or free speech? The answers to these questions may depend on why we value democracy. So there may be intrinsic, an intrinsic value in having the ability to govern ourselves as free and equal citizens through collective self-determination. But others point at the instrumental value of democratic institutions. So prudentially, perhaps, democratic checks and balances can help prevent abuses of power and epistemically, under the right conditions at least, democratic deliberation can improve the quality of public decisions by improving the information we have about uh, our citizens and the responsiveness of public institutions to uh, citizens' preferences. So I'm very excited to be joined in this conversation on AI and democracy by four experts, uh, Professor Jocelyn Maclure, uh, uh, Zeynep Pamuk, Annette Zimmerman, and Etienne Brown. I will introduce them shortly uh, when we start our discussions. Um, and I'm really happy to uh, 
to have them today because I've been reading their research. I mean, they are uh, working uh, at the cutting edge of uh, the, the research in AI ethics, and I've been reading their research and using it in my own teaching. So it's a very nice opportunity to discuss their ideas and uh, to ask them some questions that I've been uh, uh, you know, waiting to ask them for a long time. So because of uh, the impact of AI on democracy is uh, very large, I propose today to ask uh, our experts just a few questions on key ideas in their most recent research uh, to introduce our audience to some of the, the, the burning debates happening right now in the field of AI ethics. There will be also a chance for you, the audience, to ask questions. I invite you to share your questions through the Q&A feature at the bottom of your screen. The instructions for how to use this are in the chat. And please let us know your name and affiliation. Uh, we are particularly keen to hear from our students and alumni at the LSE. And, but everyone, of course, is welcome to, um, uh, to ask questions. I will select at the end uh, some of your questions to ask uh, our panelists. And um, this will uh, lead us towards the end of the event uh, around uh, 7.15 p.m. You can also tweet about this event using the hashtag um, LSE post-COVID. And finally, this event is being recorded in the hope that a podcast uh, can be made afterwards, assuming that uh, we do not face any technical difficulties. So without further ado, I would like to start with you, Jocelyn, uh, Jocelyn Maclure, to uh, discuss the importance of publicity in democratic decisions. Jocelyn, uh, you are a professor of philosophy at McGill University in Canada. You have done a lot of research in political philosophy, including a book on uh, secularism and freedom of conscience with uh, Professor Charles Taylor. And your recent research has turned uh, to artificial intelligence. And today I would like to discuss uh, your recent paper entitled AI Explainability and Public Reason. And to introduce a little bit the, the general context, one common condition for public decisions or governmental decision to be considered legitimate is that they must be open to public scrutiny. But the use of machine learning in social technical systems raises problems for this ideal of publicity. So can you briefly introduce the explainability problem in machine learning? Sure. Uh, first, uh, let me thank you, Tama, for organizing uh, such a great panel. I'm very looking forward to the discussion with you and uh, Zeneb and Annette and uh, Etienne. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, uh, current uh, state-of-the-art AI system have an explainability uh, problem, uh, perhaps actually two explainability problems, uh, uh, but it's uh, both are based on the way that they uh, function, uh, right? So, um, it's a, a the, the most efficient uh, AI systems nowadays are based on different kinds of machine learning uh, algorithms or different kinds of artificial neural uh, networks. And um, uh, such models are uh, said to be uh, opaque uh, because uh, when they produce a given uh, output, uh, it can be uh, how something is classified, it can be uh, a prediction, uh, it can be you know, any kind of, of, of decisions or recommendations. 
um, the, the given output uh, cannot be easily uh, explained. Uh, so uh, the AI can make a recommendation about a particular uh, medical diagnosis, or um, it can uh, classify someone who uh, was found guilty of a crime as someone who presents a high risk of uh, recidivism, or it um, uh, can predict that the candidate uh, for a particular job uh, will not stay long on the job, that uh, she or he uh, will resign soon, or that uh, a candidate you know, who wants to get into a particular academic program, uh, that he will not be able to obtain the degree in the planned amount of, of time. Uh, so all these outputs, you know, which have, uh, you know, important uh, effects on uh, the, the uh, on the persons who has submitted to the automated decision, uh, the output cannot be uh, easily uh, explained. So even if you look at the code, uh, um, you look at the algorithm, you look at the code, you cannot easily extract an explanation for the given uh, output. So that's the, uh, you know, in the briefly uh, put uh, the uh, explainability problem in uh, in the history of AI, you know, when uh, so-called classical AI or rule-based AI or expert systems were uh, the best available uh, models, uh, AI did not face uh, the same uh, the, the, an explainability uh, problem, right? Because you could look at the, the code and you could kind of find a uh, a logical pathway from the input to the output or a chain of reasons, right, leading to a particular uh, decision. Um, but, um, but, but, but when you, uh, given that uh, machine learning algorithms are much more powerful, much more efficient, say, tasks such as computer vision or, or natural language uh, processing, uh, these models outperform the more uh, classical um, kinds of AI uh, algorithms, but uh, they are more uh, efficient, but they uh, are also are uh, opaque. Uh, and it's mostly because their, their internal architecture is highly uh, complex, right? They, in their training phase, they require a very large amount of uh, data. Um, and their uh, internal architecture involves, you know, uh, kind of a neural network or artificial neural network, which is uh, often made of a very, very large amount of uh, so-called hidden uh, layers, and all the layers themselves contain many nodes or or or, or uh, nodes or or weight, uh, and. Um, uh, it's uh, uh, the, the performance is based on the capacity of the model uh, to uh, find patterns in these large amounts of uh, data. Uh, so it's a very powerful uh, tools. Uh, but uh, again, if you, uh, uh, so to speak, lift the hood and look at the uh, algorithms, you will not find something like a, a, a causal chain which, which leads to a, an explanation. Uh, and uh, so I said that there are maybe two explainability problems. Sometimes the, the programmers themselves cannot fully explain why the model is performing well um, because of that tremendous internal uh, complexity. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of, you know, trial and error and fine tuning and you, uh, there are so many parameters that are uh, involved. So, of course, the, the computer scientists can tell you, well, this is a reinforcement learning algorithm and this is how it works and so on. But, you know, why does that particular algorithm uh, performs so well, it might be uh, difficult sometimes to explain uh, exactly why. So that's a, a, the, the 
the explainability problem as a techno-scientific problem, right? And uh, it, it's not necessarily that uh, like ethically uh, salient. It can be, but not necessarily. Uh, I, in my work, I, fo I focus on the other explainability problem, which is a, a normative uh, problem, right? When we use AI to automate uh, decision making in uh, high stake, ethically high stake uh, situations. Uh, well, then it means that uh, you know the AI will uh, you know make a decision which has a, an important impact on 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 some uh, on an individual or, or on a group. Uh, but we will not have an easy access to the reasons which led to the uh, decision, and that can you know that could be used to assess the justification of the decision. So that that's explainability as an ethical. Uh, problem, and I think that that's one of the most important ethical problems that AI is facing uh, nowadays. And in particular, you believe that this opacity and this explainability problem leads to a deficit in public reason. And so, can right. you explain a little bit why public reason matters for for democracy? What it is first, and and perhaps why it matters for democracy? Right. Okay. Um, so yeah. So public reason is a uh, concept in. Uh, mostly political philosophy that is drawn from from uh, Kantian philosophy. Uh, so uh, Kant, uh, as an uh, Enlightenment philosopher, promoted the use the public use of reasons. Right. So uh, we Enlightened citizens should try to. Uh, you know, uh, engage in, in, in reason giving with other uh, citizens and uh, public official as well. And the goal is to try to provide rational justification for our beliefs, for our uh, actions and for our public uh, decisions uh, as well. So it's a, it's a theme that was taken up later by uh, Kentian, uh, uh, post-Kentian philosophers uh, uh, and in the 20th century by, by philosophers such as Habermas or Rawls or Honora uh, O'Neill. And uh, for, uh, so I draw mostly on, on, on Rawls and um, his, um, his, uh, his notion of public reason has two main uh, dimensions. The first one is more procedural. Uh, so public reason for him is the reason of democratic citizens uh, and elected officials, you know, engage in public uh, deliberation. So it's the reason of a citizen. Uh, and again, it's through, you know, exchanging reasons with uh, others uh, that we uh, should hope to uh, make um, uh, public decisions that will uh, be uh, uh, just uh, for uh, all the, the citizens. Uh, but it also has a substantive uh, dimension. So uh, public reason for Rawls are, uh, uh, so are, are public reasons in the plural, right? So the, what are the substantial justification uh, that we uh, use to justify uh, decisions, especially high stake decisions, right? When our basic rights are at play or our basic welfare, security, and so on, uh, we should um, aim uh, to publicly justify our uh, decisions uh, and uh, public justifications re requires providing to all those who are affected by decisions reasons that are public in the sense that they, uh, you know, those that the affected parties could at least potentially accept them, right? So that the the, the, the reasons are not private in the sense that uh, they are the reasons of the, the of the religious majority, for instance, or they are, they are the reasons of the elite or the most wealthy. There are reasons. They are public in the sense that there are reasons that all could share, you know, uh, regardless of the, uh, you know, to which social groups they belong to, and 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 so on, uh, and uh, so that would that's that is seen as a, a condition. 
implications of the uh, democratic legitimacy of basic public norms and uh, decisions that they are public in that uh, sense. And, and in that sense, I think it's, a, it's both the conditions of democratic legitimacy and also of, of, of justice, you know, understood as, as fairness, that uh, all citizens could potentially at least, at least accept them because they are not biased against them or they, not, they don't favor the interest of a particular uh, group. Yeah, that's interesting. I think in, in your paper, you, you, um, you draw an interesting distinction. Um, so clearly, if we use opaque algorithms on Netflix to make recommendations for videos, maybe the opacity is not such a problem, um, you know, if it works and it makes good recommendations, why should we know exactly how, how it works? But clearly for high stakes um, cases, cases like the allocation of public services or the automation of decisions uh, in, uh, in courts of justice. In these cases, it seems that there's a higher standard of justification. We need to be able, to, or the public needs to be able to understand what is the reasoning that led to a particular decision, to be able to evaluate it perhaps, or, or even perhaps contest it. And so um, exactly. I think that's a, an interesting dis uh, distinction. Right, exactly. So for some reasons, it seems like the uh, uh, algorithm that Amazon uses think that I will be very interested in Jordan Peterson's work. And uh, I hope that's not because that the algorithm discovered something, you know, that I didn't, doesn't even recognize that I, uh, that I fail in the, when I introspect and that uh, some, somehow I'm attracted to his work. I'm pretty sure that I'm not, you know, interested in Jordan Peterson's work, but the algorithm keeps recommending uh, his books uh, to me. Uh, but that's not a high stake situation, right? It's just sometimes Spotify get, gets it wrong and, and that's all. It doesn't affect my, uh, like profoundly my well-being or, or my, my basic rights uh, for sure. But in other cases, uh, if I'm applying for a job and uh, uh, the, the company is using an algorithm at least to uh, decide who will be shortlisted, um, well, then, you know, uh, it, it, it matters greatly to uh, my right to like equal opportunity that the uh, algorithm will not be a bias against me because of some of my, uh, you know, uh, characteristics or, uh, uh, you know, things that uh, um, distinguish me from, from other uh, candidates. Um, and in, in these high-stakes scenarios, I, the, the normative position that I'm defending is that uh, we should recognize that organizations, both public and private, uh, should uh, you know abide by a, a strong uh, explainability uh, requirement uh, because the basic rights and uh, well-being of the affected parties are uh, involved. So these are uh, ethically high-stake uh, situations. And so, if we have this ideal of, of kind of public justification for our, uh, AI systems, uh, some propose a kind of technical solution. So an explainable AI system that will be able to explain their decisions to human beings. Uh, but you propose also, uh, in addition, perhaps, or, you know, uh, as a complement, uh, a social and institutional approach to the explainability problem. So can you elaborate a little bit on, on this idea? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a philosopher and I try, I do my best to understand how AI, AI, AI works today by reading and discussing with AI researchers, but I, I don't claim any expert, technical uh, expertise there. Uh, so I'm, I'm well aware that uh, um, explainable AI is a, uh, it's, it's a booming field of research uh, now, and uh, I remain agnostic about, you know, how successful it will prove to be. You know, there are some researchers who want to make 
the AI algorithms intrinsically more transparent, uh, right? Um, so I don't know if uh, this need this involves that we will need to move away uh, from uh, machine learning and, and try to design other kind of algorithms that would have the same kind of performance. Um, and I don't know if that will be successful. Others are trying to design algorithms that will be interpretive algorithms, you know, so exposed, they will say, so this is what a, a deep neural network, you know, provide us, us with, as, uh, with, with these outcomes, and we'll use another algorithm to make, to shed some light on uh, the, the output to provide some explainability. And, uh, you know, I think that Philosophers, at least like me, I'm not a, a philosopher of of, of, uh, of computer science, for instance. I, I'm agnostic. You know, I, I don't know if that will prove uh, successful and and good. It's, it's going to be just good if it if it does. But um, in the meantime, uh, organizations, both public and private, are uh, uh, you know deploying AI in these high state situations already. So um, as ethicists and, and political philosophers, but also regulators need to decide how uh, we should regulate the use of these AI uh, system. And it, 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 it dawned on me that uh, uh, you know often the, the research comes from uh, you know the AI researchers or uh, other you know actors in the in the tech uh, world, and uh, you know they're not expert in how uh, on, on human nature and how societies works and and so on. And often I feel I I think that they uh, underestimate uh, how you know we can also come up with with social and institutional answers to uh, these ethical uh, dilemmas. And uh, one of the arguments or counter arguments to the strong explainability requirement uh, that I. Uh, addressed in the paper is what I call the uh, argument from the limitation or the flaws of the human mind, right? So often AI enthusiasts will say, well, you know, look at human reasoning, how flawed and biased uh, it is. And, uh, and it's true that it is, right? We're all fallible uh, epistemic uh, agents. Uh, but uh, uh, we, uh, because we know that we're fallible, we designed many of our procedures and, and, and institution precisely to mitigate these shortcomings and, and flaws. And then we can give different uh, examples in the judicial uh, system or, or in how, you know, in the, in the scientific community or even, you know, bureaucratic decision making. You know, oftentimes we will find some very, like the formalism will be extremely um, uh, uh, rigid, uh, precisely uh, because we want to mitigate for these sh shortcomings. So in, in many cases, we'll try to make the decision-making process more intersubjective, right? Uh, so to um, uh, compensate for uh, you know, any individual uh, own uh, biases. Uh, so you need to exchange reason with, uh, with others and, and there's some checks and balances and, and so on. And, and sometimes we design rules, you know, we. Um, and I'll conclude with that because I don't want to take too much time, but we, you know, as, as many of you, I was struck by this, the, the result of that study showing that judges uh, tend to be more, say, severe uh, in their decision right before lunch, right? It, it was very striking and, 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 and worrisome, right? Because that's, that's just noise, right? It's not ethically relevant uh, that the judge is uh, hungry. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, I... Um, 
I participated recently in, in a trial uh, as an expert uh, witness, and I was really struck by the, the formalism of the procedure, right? And uh, including what looks like very trivial rule about so when we should go to recess and so, so that the judge can, can rest. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a very strict uh, compliance with these uh, rules just to make sure that we try to mitigate the risk that, uh, you know, noise and other arbitrary factors will have an impact on decision uh, making. Uh, so that's just a, 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 a small example showing that uh, uh, social and institutional rules, uh, you know, are precisely designed to uh, compensate for our individual uh, shortcomings. Uh, and it, it seems that we underestimate the importance of uh, such the design of our social institution when we think about the limits of, of human reasoning. So it doesn't strike me as a very good argument to uh, try to deflate this, uh, uh, this, this explainability requirement, right? If we're going to automate some decision-making in some crucial areas of, uh, of, our, uh, of human life, uh, well, the standard should be very high. There's, the rules should be uh, strict. And, uh, you know, uh, alluding to the shortcomings of individual region doesn't seem like a, a, a good reason to be lenient with regard to those who decide to use AI in these crucial uh, areas. Yeah, thank you. That, that's very interesting. And I think it makes a nice transition to, um, to the next part of our, our discussion, um, because I think in this institutional approach to the explainability problem, um, uh, it, it's also something that can help us to distinguish two different kinds of ideals, the ideal of publicity, uh, which is the idea that public decisions, for example, should be at least potentially uh, subjected to, um, uh, to public scrutiny um, it, with the adequate uh, institutional uh, safeguards. And the ideal of transparency, which is simply to kind of open the whole process to, um, uh, to everyone, uh, for everyone to see. And so I want to ask a question to the, the audience. Uh, so uh, try to get the audience a little bit uh, involved. Uh, and I'll ask you the the, the following uh, question, but first I'll set up the um, I'll set up the the question. So um, there, there's been concerns uh, growing recently regarding social media platforms using opaque algorithms in content moderation to suppress or amplify speech online. And um, in a recent article on this topic by um, uh, Chris Stoker Walker in the MIT uh, Technology Review. Uh, he reports that um, the chief executive of Ofcom, uh, Melanie Dodds, uh, which regulates uh, social media in the UK, has said that social media platforms will have to explain how their code works. And their goal is to bring transparency and oversight of the algorithms that govern our timelines and our news feeds. And the publicity requirement would merely require uh, institutional safeguards to be able to exercise scrutiny over social media platforms and how they engage in content moderation. So a typical example in a different context, a restaurant may not want to be totally transparent about the ingredients in their secret sauce because they fear competition, but they have to give their recipe uh, to the food inspectors in charge of public health. So this is an institutional solution allowing public scrutiny uh, but without total transparency, right? And so similarly with social media platforms, uh, we might need regulation to impose publicity and oversight guarantees. But 
to protect platforms, trade secrets, and user privacy maybe, we might want to avoid total transparency and prefer instead some kind of independent third-party inspector looking under the hood. Right? So that's a kind of example of how to apply the publicity requirement um, in the case of uh, social media platforms, uh, content moderation. The transparency requirement, by contrast, would be a bit more demanding. Right? So recently in the news, um, we've all heard uh, that uh, Elon Musk uh, initiated the very eventful process of buying Twitter. And one of his main motivations was reportedly to make its algorithm totally transparent and open source so that everyone could exercise scrutiny over it. And he argued that because Twitter had become the kind of de facto public space, transparency is necessary to restore trust and make sure that the algorithm is not uh, politically biased. For example, censoring conservative speech and amplifying liberal speech or the reverse. And he believes that total transparency, just making the uh, uh, algorithm open source is important to preserve trust and democracy. But besides questioning the practicality and the real benefits of such measure, uh, some also underlined that open sourcing Twitter's algorithms um, would make the entire code uh, 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 base of the, 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 the website accessible to all, which would potentially allow bad actors to pour over the software and find vulnerabilities to exploit. So there are clearly problems with this. And so if you think of these kind of two approaches, publicity and transparency, um, uh, so where is the audience regarding content moderation on, uh, uh, on social media? Do you believe that publicity guarantees are sufficient or do you support total transparency? So you can um, answer. Uh, the poll right away, and we'll see the, the results very shortly. We should get the results. So um, I think everyone can see the results now. Interestingly, uh, a majority, a kind of significant majority of people uh, support total transparency, which I think is a very interesting result. Um, a little over 35% um, uh, uh, support uh, publicity guarantees instead. Um, so this is a, a, an ongoing debate, uh, and it's the, the kind of debate that results from these kinds of distinctions that we've just discussed between the ideals of uh, uh, publicity and, and transparency. So uh, I want to turn now to um, Zeynep Pamuk to discuss the role of AI and science in democracy. Uh, so Zeynep, you are Assistant Professor of Political Science at the University of California, San Diego, and your research interests are in political theory and the philosophy of science. In your book, Politics and Expertise, How to Use Science in a Democratic Society, you write that our ability to act on some of the most pressing issues of our time, such as pandemics and climate change and even artificial intelligence, uh, depends on knowledge provided by scientists or other experts. And this reliance on expert knowledge sometimes raises a backlash against technocracy, right? the rule by experts, which would undermine democratic legitimacy. And a similar discussion arises in the context of algorithmic decision-making with a recent backlash against algorithmic governance, the rule by algorithms. So to begin, can you briefly introduce the usual dichotomy between technocracy and populism? Sure. First, I want to start by thanking you, Tama, for bringing us together and for this great conversation and thanking our audience for tuning in. 
Um, so the technocracy and populism are on the face of it uh, quite different um, modes of governance. Technocracy involves rule by experts according to rational methods of calculation and prediction. It relies on reason as its main um, authority of, of political decision-making. Populism, by contrast, usually involves uh, a leader who uh, purports to speak for the people in its totality, or to represent the people as, as one whole, um, and uh, ignores pluralism, difference, contestation. Uh, but I think an interesting way to think of these two seemingly quite different um, modes of politics is to see them both as inversions or degradations of the institutions and structure of representative democracy, and instead putting in its place a different understanding of representation. So in technocracy, the idea is that reason and rational speculation by experts uh, can replace um, the contestation between different parties, different interests, and instead it replaces truth and truth-seeking mechanisms um, with political representation. And similarly, in populism, the idea is that one leader, one charismatic leader uh, can speak for the whole. Um, so once again, the political process that uh, involves compromise, bargaining, conflict, negotiation, deliberation, uh, these kinds of processes, uh, is eliminated, and instead you have one person who speaks for some imagined wholeness of the people. So in a way, both are reactions to the, the perceived limitations or failures, uh, backlash to the, um, the problems with the institutions of parliamentary representative democracy. Um, there have been a lot of um, uh, research, there's increasing research on how or whether uh, AI and automation in the economy more broadly is resulting in a populist backlash. Mm. Um, I'm interested more in the, the other horn of the, the dilemma, the relationship between AI and technocracy. And so do you believe that algorithms exacerbate or mitigate technocratic uh, tendencies in democracies? Good question. So. Uh, once again, on the surface, when we think about what AI and decision making is replacing, uh, we see that it's replacing various forms of traditional experts, right? So, for example, um, it's replacing judges, it's replacing bureaucrats, if we're thinking about um, the use of AI in, um, in welfare decisions, for example, um, in the financial sector, it's replacing financial experts, maybe it's replacing bankers. Um, so insofar as our concern with technocracy is a concern about um, ordinary citizens being subject to the will of experts, to the arbitrary decision-making power of experts, um, or um, as, as Weber puts it, to bureaucratic domination, then we might think there's some reason to think that AI um, decision-making actually changes the problem, maybe takes away power from, from the traditional experts, um, and at least gives it to an algorithm. But that would be too quick because AI also relies on a host of invisible expert work. Um, so we see a new class of experts, not the, uh, the old experts and judges perhaps, but um, a host of engineers, um, coders, software designers who are taking the place of these experts, so they're coding the decision rules, um, they're writing the models, and they are doing the, 
the, the really crucial work and they their decisions can likewise be subject to charges of arbitrariness. So um, we, just as we were thinking that maybe this mitigates some technocratic tendencies, we see the problem crop up again. But I think on a deeper level, there's a more interesting way of thinking about AI and technocracy, which is about how AI itself, the reliance on uh, machine intelligence for decision-making itself embodies a very technocratic um, mode of decision-making, that reliance on AI to make decisions itself is a very technocratic mode of reasoning, setting aside the experts or the people involved. Uh, and this, I think, so in some areas that were already, that we all agreed required calculation and prediction, uh, which is where most of the, the AI decision-making started, I think there we can just think of it as a replacement issue. Um, but as long as AI appears to perform successfully and takes over other areas where decision-making traditionally relied on different modes of reasoning, perhaps um, less precise, less mathematical, less formal, but more, um, more human, more inexact, involving compromises, maybe less accurate, but a different mode of more political decision-making. If AI expands into those areas, um, then we will see an expansion of a technocratic mode of decision-making in areas where it didn't exist before. And finally, of course, there's a lot of talk about ethics in the context of AI, as, as many of us are concerned about the role of, of human values, of ethical and political values, of fairness, of accountability in the AI domain. There's a lot of talk about these. But when we think about um, operationalizing fairness in AI decision-making, often what it comes down to, and I'm not saying, I mean, philosophers are doing also a lot of work on structural and institutional approaches, but one, one thing that it comes down to is to, to express fairness mathematically and to code it into the AI algorithm. And that has to be a technocrat's dream of what a, what a deeply contested, essentially contested notion as fairness can be expressed as, right? You know, you tell me, philosophers tell me what it is in, in you know, in a, which, which understanding of fairness is the right one, and we'll just code it into the algorithm. And this way of thinking about something as contested and as political um, as, as fairness is what, what's the right thing to do, what a good way to make decisions is, that is really, you know, that has to be a technocrat's dream of, of, of turning ethics into expert or machine decision making. So that's another cause of concern. Yeah, that's very interesting. And we'll come back to uh, the ambiguities of defining uh, what, what fairness and machine fairness is uh, when we discuss with Annette. But I think clearly one response that we might hear sometimes is that expertise is good, that it's good to rely on, on, on experts to make uh, public decisions because expertise or science is certain, is objective, or it's value-free, right? And so it would avoid the kind of uh, political conflicts that we constantly see in our, in our democracies. But you challenge this conventional account of expertise in, uh, in your research, uh, by questioning whether science and especially uh, human experts uh, can really be uh, objective or or value free, and um, so so this translates into the the question of algorithmic governance because some might think that contrary to experts, um, algorithms perhaps might be more objective or value free because they're just kind of mathematical models. And so, do you believe that this is the case, or do you think that? Uh, algorithms might also face the same kind of problems that experts do. 
I think algorithms very much face the same kinds of problems about the role of values um, and subjective um, aspects in, in the, the model and the decision-making process. So actually the, the literature on values in science, which I draw on heavily in my book um, and which was spearheaded by feminist philosophers of science is really directly relevant to understanding AI decision-making. So um, we can think of different stages of the, um, the, the process from the, the data to the modeling to um, various um, choices about goals. And at each stage, you'll find values involved. So to start with the um, data, I don't, I don't know how much Annette is going to go into these, so I don't want to um, take over. I know she's going to talk about um, injustice and um, AI, but quickly, um, the data we have is usually um, colored with past um, injustices and um, collection of, of statistics by the state has been the product of various unjust mechanisms. So statistics themselves are, are laden with the, the values of those um, who have collected it for certain um, purposes, which usually involve marginalizing certain groups. Um, at the stage of, of writing the, um, at the stage of choosing the, the goal for which you want the um, AI algorithm to optimize, you have to make a decision about how to express that goal. So let's say you're, you want um, AI for hiring or something. So you have to have um, an output that you want to optimize something like candidate quality. Um, I don't know if people here have been involved in hiring, but in my department, for example, we deliberated for a long time about whether we should have um, a rubric for, for hiring candidates. And it's just so subjective. It's, it creates the illusion of a formalization of mathematization where like different um, aspects would have numbers attached to them. But when you think about it, it's the most subjective process. And of course, to have the AI do the, the CV filtering for you, you have to go through something like this and, and have, have an output that the AI is then optimizing very effectively for. And that couldn't be more subjective. You're taking a lot of very um, contested things and you, you come up with a, a quantification for something that's probably deeply qual uh, qualitative and, not, and should not be quantified often. Another thing is about the choice of parameters, of constraints. So the modelers have to make various trade-offs about uh, what sorts of processes they, they should represent accurately and which ones they can approximate more, which what's more important to represent properly. And in each of these choices, um, there's a trade-off between um, different kinds of errors. So you will have um, different kinds of, of mistakes depending on how you make these choices. So this is the inductive risk literature um, in the philosophy of science. Um, and these choices are very subjective and they will produce different results. So I'm not saying the result is, is arbitrariness or inaccuracy. I mean, that's um, a little bit of both is a given, but um, there are subjective trade-offs that the, the designer or the, the coder has to make. And finally, this issue about um, fairness and its coding. Of course, there are very different conceptions of fairness that you could code into the algorithm. And um, it's been shown that many of them are, are mutually incompatible. So whether you have more accurate um, more accuracy for different groups or whether you have um, equal rates of false positives, equal rates of false negatives. These, these are subjective decisions. Somebody has to decide which conception of fairness to use. Um, and this is another place where values go directly into the coding. So no, I do not think AI reduces the, the role of values. Maybe it hides it better, <laughs> I don't know. But I think the same issues that arise in science 
um, arise in the domain of AI. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the event. And in your book, you argue for institutions um, that support scientific dissent, right? Such as uh, an adversarial science court to facilitate public scrutiny over science. And um, uh, do you think that uh, there will be a role for such institutions in the governance of AI? Yes, absolutely. So I think one important thing is that this, all this criticism of AI, debates about its ethic, its politics, should not end with just um, principles that we come up with that we hope um, the designers and users will simply implement. I think it's important to move from just criticism and design recommendations to more control um, either by the government, ideally by citizens themselves. And the idea of a science core is to bring together um, scientists and experts directly face-to-face on an issue that involves high technical content, which is very much something that fits the description of AI, um, where citizens would ordinarily be left out and also maybe find it difficult to um, evaluate between different arguments. And, And the adversarial structure is meant to bring together um, to bring out the, the, the values involved, the, the weaknesses of different views, the implications. So different experts would um, kind of criticize one another, um, cross-examine one another. Um, so the question that AI case is exactly what, what level this would be pitched at. So would you have um, a higher level debate about, about policy? I think that would be one way to go. So the science court is meant to be uh, an institution that feeds into policy decisions or makes policy decisions. So that that's that's one way. But another I can imagine is to take um, a dispute about um, a more uh, micro level design principle and and have different um, experts defending a different view on it. Or maybe we could have something like what we just asked our audience members about whether you know we want. Um, publicity or whether we want complete transparency. So something like that. And there'd be different sides arguing for a different side of the issue. And I absolutely think direct participation by citizens um, could play an important role in the governance of AI. Well, thanks. That's really fascinating. It also links with the discussion of like how to build institutions to help exercise public scrutiny over uh, algorithmic governance. And now I want to turn to um, Annette Zimmerman, to discuss uh, issues at the intersection of democracy and algorithmic injustice. Um, we're a bit behind schedule, but uh, we'll try to, uh, to really uh, um, discuss all these complex issues in sufficient detail. So Annette is a lecturer uh, of philosophy at the University of York and incoming assistant professor of philosophy at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. In a recent paper entitled uh, Proceed with Caution, uh, you underlined that it is becoming more common, and we've discussed this uh, a little bit earlier, uh, that the decision makers in private and public institutions are predictive algorithmic systems, not humans. And uh, for you, relying on algorithmic systems is procedurally unjust in societies where there is already some background of structural injustice. And interestingly, I think in your research, um, you also argue that solving algorithmic 
injustice is not just a technical problem for software developers. It really requires a kind of robust democratic participation, as we just discussed uh, it, uh, with Zeynep. And so we need some democratic oversight, uh, not just from developers, but from all members of society. And so now I want to focus really on the question of, uh, of fairness. And so to begin, could you perhaps briefly introduce the problem of algorithmic injustice in general, and perhaps uh, explain quickly what is a statistical bias in, in algorithmic injustice? Right. Let me begin by thanking you as well, Tama, for putting together this event. Thanks for, uh, to LSE for hosting it. Uh, and thank you to the audience for, for participating and discussing with us. Uh, now, in terms of defining algorithmic injustice, there's this really common view, uh, both in computer science and also other disciplines that intersect with this um, kind of interdisciplinary research field. A lot of people seem to think that AI or just big data more broadly is simply a social mirror. So the idea is, well, don't blame AI if like we get really biased outcomes. So if we get outcomes that kind of amplify things like gender inequality or racial inequality, because guess what? Society is already deeply unjust. So it's to be expected that our technological systems will reflect that to some degree. So it's kind of tempting to think of AI as just a kind of perfect mirror image of the way society currently is. Uh, what's missing in that conception is that AI can actually often exacerbate conditions of structural injustice and also other kinds of injustice, uh, particularly if we leave it unchecked. Right? So what we see very often is that human agents who are involved in deliberations about AI design and deployment, uh, so that could be programmers, but it could also be people who make decisions about procuring particular tools, for instance, in order to deploy them in our governmental institutions. Um, and other kind of policy level uh, decision makers, they're really prone to opting out of this kind of process of critical scrutiny over AI. And right? so we see phenomena like automation bias. We know that human agents are really unlikely to question a decision sequence if it seemingly results from this really quantifiable process. So we as human agents just kind of overtrust those types of decisions. And so it's very hard to get ourselves to intervene upon those decisions, but that's exactly uh, where we must intervene if we want to avoid this exacerbation effect. So if we le leave a particular algorithmic decision-making tool, uh, you know, run its course, uh, we can often see that phenomena like statistical bias can get exacerbated over time. Uh, now, you also asked about uh, statistical bias specifically. So uh, let's unpack that just with a, a really famous example. Uh, so a lot of uh, computer scientists and philosophers are interested in this a particular example of a criminal recidivism risk prediction algorithm. And that algorithm is called Compass. Now, what people found out about Compass and uh, just one group of people to, to mention in particular here is a group of investigative journalists at uh, the ProPublica uh, Pro platform. Uh, they conducted a really, uh, you know, uh, influential uh, investigation here that uh, really kicked off a lot of public interest in this topic as well. Uh, they found out that different people fared really differently when being assessed by this uh, Compass algorithm. And in particular, Compass failed differently for different groups of people. So just to give you a very concrete example, there were these two defendants who were being scored by Compass. One of them, a black defendant, Bernard Parker, uh, had only one minor prior offense, which was a nonviolent resistance to arrest. Uh, the other, a white defendant, Dylan Fugette, 
uh, had multiple uh, you know, armed robberies and kind of drug-related offenses. Uh, and so over the course of the next few years, Bernard Parker, the black defendant, uh, never reoffended again. But Dylan Forget did reoffend multiple times, again, multiple drug charges. Interestingly, though, Compass gave Bernard Parker uh, a 10 out of 10 risk score. So Compass uh, viewed this particular defendant as a very high risk individual, uh, whereas Dylan Forget got only three out of 10, uh, so pretty low risk score. And so that, that gives you a pretty concrete illustration uh, of how the system can go wrong in different directions. So it really overestimated Bernard Parker's riskiness uh, in terms of recidivism rate. Uh, and it really underestimated Dylan Forget's risk level. Uh, and so that tracks uh, statistical distributions uh, that we already see in society, so particular uh, injustices that are particularly salient in the criminal justice system, where Black defendants are systematically treated unjustly. They are now being replicated by the use of this ostensibly neutral uh, technology. But interestingly, again, the company that developed this tool, which uh, at the time was called North Point and is now called Equivent, uh, they were trying to defend themselves here, obviously, right? So they were saying, well, listen, you know, our tool just relies on data that shows the world as it currently is. Recall that's the uh, data as a social mirror thesis from before. Uh, computer scientists actually have a concept for that. Uh, that concept is called calibration. Uh, and it's a reasonable goal in a design process, right? So we wanna make sure that the systems that we design uh, actually adequately reflect uh, the data that we have. Problem is that data has been shaped by injustice, right? So it's not like we're starting out on an equal playing field. Um, we can see that when we think about how to even measure things like crime rates, right? So effectively, we don't have a good method for measuring crime. What we can measure, of course, is arrest rates. And arrest rates, again, are influenced by important uh, and pernicious social factors. We know that particular communities, especially communities of color, are dramatically over-policed, particularly in the U.S. context, uh, which leads to higher arrest rates, right? So the arrest rate itself is not a, a decisively informative measurement. Uh, but of course, if we don't reflect on the informativeness of this particular data point, we're just going to accept the claim that, you know, our database shows us a really high distribution of crime rates in one particular uh, population. And so that's when we as human agents can really be misled when we try to make decisions based on algorithmic scores. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think the examples you, you mentioned are, are very illuminating. And so clearly there is a, just a you know, rough statistical bias if the data we have is biased in some way, for example, because um, the, data, the people who are collecting the data or the method we use to collect the data is uh, problematic. That can lead to uh, biases in uh, algorithmic decisions. There could also be unintended biases. So even if we remove uh, specific identifying information about gender or race, for example, the point of AI systems and machine learning in particular is to kind of find patterns in the data. So they're able to kind of approximate use proxies uh, for gender or race. But in your research, you also explained that even accurate algorithms, algorithms that would actually be good at representing society or at identifying particular characteristics of individuals. Um, so even accurate algorithms uh, would be unjust or could lead to reproducing injustices if they are used in structurally unjust society. So can you explain this a little bit further? 
Sure. Yeah. Uh, let me give you my favorite uh, contemporary example of uh, a supposedly accurate um, tool that still leads to morally and politically objectionable outcomes, uh, at least to some degree. Uh, so there, there was a Stanford-based uh, research team uh, that recently published um, a tool which was recognition tool and they claim that their tool can recognize people's sexual orientation i think we um, just have lost um annette and so um maybe if uh, if annette doesn't um, uh, reconnect um i'll just um say a, a, a few words uh, and then uh, we'll uh, uh jump directly to um to etienne um and so uh, I think uh, what Annette was uh, trying to, to explain here is that if you live in a society uh, that uh, involves structural injustices, then some marginalized groups uh, in a population do have statistically lower prospects. Right? And so because of past injustices, because of current injustices, uh, uh, people in marginalized communities might have less access to education, might have less chances of landing a, a good job. And so even an algorithm that would be very accurate, that would be very good at uh, making predictions about individuals and wouldn't involve statistical bias or um, uh, or um, uh, or the kind of, uh, of biases, uh, might still become extremely accurate at excluding uh, people who do have statistically lower prospects, right? Uh, even if someone is part of a group that has statistically lower prospects, but they themselves uh, don't because they uh, they uh, uh, had access to to some privileges, and so in these cases um, we reduce individuals to statistics about the group to which they belong, and that could be um, a, a source of injustice as well. Now. Um, I want to turn to Etienne Brown. Uh, so um, uh, we'll discuss uh, disinformation. Etienne is assistant professor of philosophy at San Jose State University in the US. Uh, you have a variety of uh, interests uh, in ethics and the philosophy of technology. Uh, but today, uh, we will discuss your article on free speech and the legal prohibition of fake news. So if we believe in the epistemic value of democracy, which I mentioned uh, earlier, um, we could wonder about the effects of uh, social media platforms on democratic uh, deliberation. Uh, welcome back, Hanet. I'm sorry uh, that we lost hey, talk you. about algorithmic injustice and you get kicked off the Zoom call immediately. Because there must be <laughs> some, uh, some, some plot or something. <laughs> Um, so uh, I'll, I'll finish uh, with Etienne, and then perhaps in the discussion we can come back to the questions about uh, injustice. Um, and so, um, as I was saying, so if we believe in the epistemic value of democracy, uh, we could wonder about the effects of social media platforms on democratic deliberation. Uh, artificial intelligence increases the capacity of these, these social media platforms to govern information flow, right? So to see uh, to govern what we see on on our uh, newsfeed. Uh, true algorithmic uh, content moderation. And they can do so in ways that enhances or undermines the quality of the information that we receive. 
And this is important because many people rely on information they get from social media to inform their political beliefs or make political decisions. For instance, when Facebook decided to ban the publication of news articles on its platform in Australia, uh, it was revealed that up to 40% of Australians get most of their news from Facebook. And so if social media platforms fail to uh, adequately suppress fake news and disinformation, or even amplify it um, to stimulate engagement, then it could undermine individuals' autonomy and their capacity to engage in meaningful uh, collective self-determination. So Etienne, perhaps uh, if you can begin by briefly explaining how social media platforms use algorithmic content moderation and how this uh, allows the proliferation of fake news. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Thomas, for the invitation, and thanks to everyone, panelists and audience members who were able to, to join the Zoom. It's, it's always a pleasure uh, to discuss. I'm very happy to have the discussion. I'll try to keep my answers not, not quite short, and then maybe we're going to have um, time to go back to what Annette was saying, because I know she was cut off. I'm certainly interested in um, learning more about what she thinks about algorithmic injustice. So yeah, uh, the, the short answer to your question, Thomas, um, is pretty straightforward, right? Uh, what you see on social media is uh, to a large extent determined by algorithmic recommendation systems. Uh, so social media companies collect data uh, about your online behavior and they use this data to present you with posts um, and advertisements that they think will interest you. Uh, for instance, if you've been Googling new shoes a lot recently, then you might see an ad uh, on Facebook about uh, a kind of shoe that you can buy. And of course, if you've been liking certain kinds of posts um, on uh, social media like Twitter on Facebook, and then you'll be presented with similar posts, right? Of course, the information, the kind of posts that people engage with um, on social media is, is the kind of information is not necessarily or always information of, of high quality. Um, so if you engage with conspiracy theories a lot, um, then you will be presented with more um, conspiracy theories. And if you engage with fake news a lot, um, you will be presented with uh, more fake news. Um, so I think that in this way, algorithm, algorithmic recommendation system can kind of contribute to the proliferation of, of this information online. Um, you're also likely as, as an internet user, social media user, uh, to see opinions with which you already agree, because when people post ideas or claims that you agree with, you're more likely to like them or to engage with them, which uh, can lead to the formation of epistemic bubbles, which is basically in a situation in which you're repeatedly exposed to ideas with which you already agree, but you're not rarely um, exposed to uh, the views or claims made by people that are kind of outside your epistemic community, so to speak. Yeah, that's interesting. And in, in your recent paper, you argue that democratic governments um, and perhaps uh, uh, social media platforms themselves have strong reasons to prohibit fake news and that doing so is compatible with free speech. So can you elaborate a little bit on your position? Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, so this is the controversial claim um, uh, uh, of the article, right? So I don't believe that necessarily prohibiting fake news legally um, is kind of a miracle cure that's going to solve the problem of disinformation in the internet. That's not what I'm arguing. But I am arguing that um, governmental regulation against misinformation, certain kinds of them, um, are compatible with free speech. So basically, um, the central concept is, in my argument is the concept of autonomy, uh, which is an extremely important concept for um, the philosophy of free speech. So there's a long-standing tendency, especially in the American philosophical tradition, American legal tradition, 
um, to consider that no matter what kind of speech you're exposed to, online or offline, for, for instance, hate speech or misinformation, no matter what um, speech you're exposed to, you're the only person responsible for your actions. Uh, because fundamentally, you're an autonomous agent, right? So regardless of the speech that you're presented with, you make the autonomous decision to act. Um, and philosophers who endorse this conception of autonomy tend to think that if we regulate speech, uh, we, disrespect, we disrespect people as autonomous agent. We kind of infantilize them. Uh, and we act in a paternalistic manner. So I think that this kind of conception of autonomy and the relationship between um, free speech and, and autonomy um, is a little bit of an oversimplification. Um, I think that people who diffuse speech are partly responsible for actions that other people commit on the basis of that speech. Um, I don't think that with concept like responsibility need to be the case that 100% uh, of the responsibility falls on the shoulders of the person who acts. Uh, I think we can distribute, have a more kind of dis distributed conception of responsibility. And even more importantly, I believe that I think we should endorse a kind of different and a richer conception of autonomy. Uh, I've been influenced by um, the feminist discourse of auto on, on autonomy that developed in the 90s during the debate on the relationship between uh, pornography and gender justice. So in my view, being autonomous is essentially a matter of effectively pursuing your goals of being able to do the things that you really want to do. Um, and I think that misinformation can pose an obstacle um, to that, uh, especially when misinformation prevents people from appreciating reasons for action. So all of this is a little bit abstract. Let me give you an example of that. I think it's fair to say that most parents in the world um, have the goal, the objective of protecting um, the health of their children, um, but they might have encountered misinformation, health misinformation, for, in for instance, misinformation about vaccines that led them to believe um, that vaccines are dangerous and they should not have their children vaccinated against you know, COVID or, or another disease. And I think that in this case, what happens is that misinformation prevents um, parents to appreciate the reason that they have to uh, have their children vaccinated um, by forming false beliefs. And I think that such an example kind of demonstrate that often um, misinformation can actually make people less autonomous, can prevent them from actually doing what they want to do, in this case, protecting the health of their children. Um, and I think that on that basis, um, we have reasons to consider that we, we should at least regulate um, misinformation online. Yeah, that's very interesting. I think one concept I like also in, uh, in your research is this idea of like epistemic dependence, the fact that if we depend too much on, uh, for example, social media platforms to give us the information we need to achieve our goals, and we're in, a, in this relationship of epistemic dependence in order to be able to make choices of our own. And that's clearly perhaps a, a powerful relationship that requires some, some regulation. Right. Um, so time is running and I want to uh, open the floor to, to questions of, of the public. Uh, and so um, uh, please, uh, the audience, if you have any questions, now is the time to post them uh, through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Uh, and, um, and you can also upvote the questions. So if there are questions that uh, others have posted that you agree are important, uh, you can upvote them. And so while people are doing this, um, I want to launch uh, our second and last uh, poll uh, for today. And so um, uh, just as a, as a general question after the discussion that we have uh, uh, we've had with our panelists, uh, are you personally optimistic or pessimistic about the impact of artificial intelligence 
on our democracies. So um, I think you can see the poll now and uh, register your, your answers uh, while we're waiting for uh, some of the questions um, to ask our panelists. Okay, so I think now we can probably see the results of uh, the poll. So 63% um, of you are pessimistic. Uh, I, uh, I also a bit surprised uh, by this, only 37% uh, are optimistic about the impact of artificial intelligence on our democracies. Um, personally, I think uh, uh, I, I feel uh, relatively optimistic about the, the benefits of, of AI, but I do think that it's important to keep an eye on the potential risks and uh, the potential disruptive uh, effects that it can have. And, uh, and I think that regulation is, is important to keep the benefits while avoiding uh, some of the, um, the risks. So um, we've received a, a few questions from uh, the audience. And so um, I'll start uh, with the one that has been uh, the most upvoted uh, by the audience. Uh, so a question by uh, Matt uh, Pountney from London, uh, who recently graduated um, uh, from uh, Cambridge. And so uh, his question is the following representative democracy was created to delegate decisions making uh, in a pre-digital society where it was not practical for large societies uh, to vote directly on issues. So how should we justify representative democracy in a society in which technology uh, now would allow us to vote directly on issues? So um, uh, maybe if, um, if uh, some of you want to take up this question. Uh, I, can, I can start uh, if you want. Yeah, go on, uh, um, All right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think uh, that um, we saw today, I think, uh, what are the different kind of problems and dilemmas created by the, the, the use of uh, uh, AI in different uh, uh, contexts. And there are no easy solutions, right, to the problem of regulating uh, fake news uh, or how to make AI algorithms uh, more uh, fair or hard to solve the, the explainability problems. There, there's no easy technological uh, uh, fixes and uh, the social, our social uh, answers also still need to be crafted. Right? Um, so uh, I'm, uh, I, I, I'm rather uh, pessimistic. I share the view of the majority on the impact of AI on, on democracy. I'm not hopeless. I think that we uh, need to, to, uh, to work hard uh, on it. And I'm uh, quite encouraged by the quality of the discussion uh, today because sometimes, you know, AI ethics is a bit, um, you know, disappointing to say the least, but uh, at least, you know, there are philosophers and political theorists working, you know, building on their uh, areas of expertise and, and tackling uh, the, these uh, challenges uh, created by AI. And, and I think that's the best way uh, to go. Uh, but that said, uh, we know that, uh, you know, given what uh, Etienne said, uh, it's not, you know, we see the effect of the uh, public discussion, which have moved online. Uh, uh, we know how difficult it is to have enlightened discussions uh, online and uh, civic participation for many citizens uh, predominantly goes through, you know, uh, the, the social, uh, the uh, platforms uh, and networks uh, now. And um, uh, clearly we still need uh, institutions uh, uh, where, 
uh, you know, at least good uh, policy uh, solutions can be recommended to our elected officials. And sometimes it will be during a, a public uh, hearing or, or in other, you know, the different areas of, of uh, expertise. And uh, uh, I, I'm not sure, I don't think that just, you know, asking people what they think, you know, online will suffice. And we need strong deliberation prior to a decision. And you want people who are accountable to the public to make the, the decisions also. So at least from my perspective, uh, we more than ever need these different uh, locus of uh, expertise, not to replace elected officials, but to you know, uh, make sure that, we, uh, that the, the public deliberation is, is uh, rigorous and enlightened before we make actual uh, decisions. So I think that there's still a role for our, um, you know, the, the processes of electoral and representative democracy. Thank you. Uh, I'll, I'll try to take as many questions as possible. So I'll switch directly to the next one. So I've just seen that uh, clearly the, the, uh, the most voted question now um, asks uh, Annette uh, to, um, uh, to go back uh, to your uh, example of uh, algorithmic injustice. And so if you can say a little bit more on, on your approach of uh, procedural uh, fairness uh, and um, uh, like, why do you think that in designing AI systems, uh, we need to take into account um, the structural injustices uh, in the societies we live in? Right, yeah, I, I hope I don't get kicked out again. Uh, apologies in advance if so. Uh, so the case that I mentioned before is really interesting because the Stanford researcher team said, hey, listen, we have this incredibly accurate tool now that can predict all of these behaviors and characteristics. So things like sexual orientation and propensity for violent criminality. And so uh, the concerning thing here is actually not this question of whether the tool is accurate, right? So the researchers approached this design question with an accuracy mindset. And to them, that accuracy question answered all other ethical and political concerns we might have here. Uh, but unfortunately, things aren't that simple because we have this historical baggage of making inferences based on blunt facial measurements and making these really far-reaching claims about, you know, the way your face looks might really tell us something about how violent you might be. We have a word for that. That's phrenology and physiognomy, right? A racist pseudoscience that was propagated by eugenicists uh, throughout history. So I think the really important question for us in liberal democratic societies is why do we wanna replicate this particular mode of inference? So could there be an important moral and political cost to making inferential judgments based on very similar types of data uh, and towards very particular types of decision outputs. So there could be what uh, philosophers call an expressivist cost here, right? So we might be communicating a very demeaning message in society if we're saying, hey, actually we don't have so many worries about replicating this very similar uh, you know, inferential method that is eerily close to, to these historical examples that have now been debunked as, as pseudoscience uh, and have clearly been very harmful. Uh, so there we might get an exacerbation effect, right? So we might actually further entrench injustice, even though uh, we could assume that the Stanford team is right, that their tool is for some reason really accurate, right? So the accuracy question doesn't really help us solve the structural injustice question to its fullest extent. So that's why it's really important to have this process of human critique and deliberation 
about the kinds of goals that we're really trying to solve when we use AI in some domain. So rather than just asking, you know, can my tool predict that somebody's gay or that somebody is likely to commit violent crimes? We should instead ask, well, why do we want AI to solve this task for us, right? Like, are there other tasks that are more important and more insightful? And why do we need to use sophisticated forms of automation to perform this task? So switching the, the question more from uh, accuracy as such and towards goals and purposes and how those goals and purposes actually align with democratic equality as an ideal, that would be really important in our quest to actually move closer to structural justice rather than further away from it. Yeah, thank you. That That's very interesting. And um, uh, again, very uh, illuminating examples. Um, time is running, um, but uh, I want to ask a, another question, which I found quite good, um, because now we've focused on kind of the risks and the dangers of, uh, of the development of artificial intelligence for our democracies. But if we want to kind of uh, promote a bit more optimism uh, uh, in favor of technology. Uh, do you think that there are ways uh, in which uh, it's possible to um, uh, to use AI or to deploy AI to make elections more accurate or more fair? Right. So, are there ways to use uh, technology in a positive way to improve elections, democratic elections? Do you have any ideas on on this question? I can jump into my, I don't know if it's exactly about elections, but one thing that I found very interesting, and I wish we had more time to discuss uh, with the panelists, is that I really agree with, um, with the, the kind of uh, risk that come with using AI to start, um, per, to, to ask AI to perform tasks that were traditionally uh, performed by humans. When one sector in which I think is going to be very difficult to avoid using or relying on AI is content moderation. So if you, if you take content moderation seriously, the amount of information that is exchanged on social media, the sheer magnitude of it, makes it so that it's going to be very difficult to have all of this information only reviewed by humans, right? Um, and, and I don't really see a future in which we can effectively moderate content without relying on artificial intelligence, right? That's kind of an indirect answer to the question. The question is about election, but I think the kind of information that people are exposed with has a decisive impact on how they're going to vote. Um, and, and I think that if we use AI for content moderation, Maybe that. Um, I, I just want to underline by saying I don't think that, again, AI is a miracle cure for content moderation. I think that there's a serious lack of human expertise in Silicon Valley, especially in engaging with political content in other languages than English. Um, you know, sometimes a call to violence in a different dialect or different language is very hard to detect by someone that's not familiar with this context. So I really, really hope that in the future years, we're going to see more people from all around the world speaking a lot of different languages, familiar with a lot of very different political contexts, actually start working um, for, for companies. And, and I want to maybe I, I want to underline this also. We're all thinking about artificial intelligence. We should not underestimate um, the kind of power that humans who work for, for, uh, uh, for tech companies in Silicon Valley have, right? The people who draft policy about misinformation and hate speech are not machines. They are humans, right? And they do things, uh, they ask themselves questions that are very similar to the questions that philosophers ask themselves. What counts as harm? 
right? Um, when there's a certain kind of content that threatens um, democracy or democratic integrity, is it sufficient reasons for us to remove it or should we flag it? All of those questions are being asked um, by humans and discussed by humans. And I think that one big problem in Silicon Valley is that there's not a lot of dialogue between people like us philosophers, members of the audience interested in the ethics of AI, and the people who are asked to draft those policies. So I really think that we need to find a way to kind of get a dialogue going and really sit at the table with the people who are drafting policy, because drafting those policies is really going to have an impact. It's kind of people are shaping our digital futures. And I think that the way it's done. Um, is not sufficiently inclusive. So I really hope that um, it will, the discussion will become more, more inclusive in the future. Yeah, very interesting. And I see that we have exhausted our time. So um, thank you all for joining us today and join me in thanking our panelists, uh, Jocelyn Maclure, Zainab Pamuk, Annette Zimmerman, and Etienne Brown. Uh, really, this was a, a fascinating discussion. And um, if you've enjoyed this discussion and want to learn more about the ethics of artificial intelligence, I know there was a question in the chat about the papers I mentioned uh, during the event. They're all on the page of the event on the LSE website. And I also invite you to follow the LSE masterclass in ethics of AI, um, and you will find the link uh, to this page uh, on the page of the event. Uh, you'll also find a schedule for future LSE events so that's our time, and I wish everyone a good day uh, or a good night wh wherever you are. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.